You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, we've been studying uh, the book of Daniel now for several weeks. My plan was to take uh, and look at it one chapter at a time, and we've been uh, pretty successful in doing that until I hit Daniel chapter 9. And uh, this has uh, kind of thrown a wrench in it, but we're, we're going to just look at the uh, first half of Daniel 9 and then come back later. If I can put off the ending of Daniel 9 a little bit longer, it gives me comfort, but uh, um, we're, we'll look at that next week, the Lord willing. So we've already noted um, from our study how Daniel was a man of prayer. And uh, here in chapter 9, we have uh, one of his prayers recorded for us. And just a quick note, uh, you, you remember back in chapter 6 that it was Daniel's praying that got him thrown into the den of lions. Um, he was under the reign of Darius in uh, chapter 6. And note from our text in verse 1, uh, that this is a prayer of Daniel during the first year of Darius's reign. And uh, so perhaps this chapter reveals something of the content of what Daniel was praying about uh, in uh, Daniel chapter 6. Let's look at it together. The first year of Darius, the son of Hasuerus, by descent a Mede who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we've rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we've sinned against him. He's confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. 
For under the whole heaven there's not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we've not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we've not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we've done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning, and uh, we humble ourselves before it. We pray that you would teach us by your spirit from it today, concerning you, concerning your will for our hearts and lives. And I pray that you would use me as your servant today. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease, and your word would go forth And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Leon Morris told how during one stretch of his life, Howard Hughes, who was an American entrepreneur back in the 20th century, in one stretch of his life that he would eat two scoops of banana nut ice cream after every single meal. And uh, he did this without fail for for a long time but then one day just out of the blue he switched to french vanilla that kind of of abrupt change is somewhat of what we see here i think in daniel chapter 9 and at least here in the latter half because we've been looking at these dreams and visions of daniel and they are not finished There will be more of them. Uh, We've seen them in chapter 7. We've seen them in chapter 8. We're going to encounter them again here at the end of chapter 9 and and, uh, beyond. Uh, But here in in chapter 9, there's a sudden change. We've we've went from these apocalyptic and prophecies and things to now we're in a Bible study and prayer. And uh, it's a lengthy prayer. The content of his prayer is recorded for us. It's written for us. In fact, it's one of the longest and, and, and most instructive prayers that is recorded in, in the Bible. 
And I think the fact that it is written down for us like this, this particular juncture here in Daniel chapter 9, must mean that he really wants us to think about this prayer uh, and to, to ponder it. And I think probably for several reasons, but, but none less than the fact that he wanted God's people to see the intimate connection between their praying and the events of history. The connection between their praying and the events of history. In a sense, Revelation chapter 8, uh, verses 3 through 5, does this as well. Here's what it says to give you an illustration. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the, the prayers, it says, of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And just notice the connection there between the prayers of the saints and how they become uh, the instrument of God's activity on the earth. That's the, that's the connection. And, and, and frankly, that's amazing to me to think about. You know, sometimes we struggle with the, sovereign, how the sovereignty of God and prayer work together. I mean, we ask, if God is sovereign and he's already determined ahead of time of how things are going to end, which he has, church. He knows the end from the beginning, doesn't he? He's already done this. Well, if that is true, then why pray? And and, and the answer Daniel gives us here, at least initially, that that it is precisely because God is sovereign over the end that we should pray for these things. Daniel did not turn to prayer here in chapter 9 because he was doubting that God's plans were uh, somehow going to fail. But rather, Daniel turns to prayer here in chapter 9 because he is confident that his sovereign God would do exactly as he promised to do. In other words, God's sovereignty fuels Daniel to pray more, not less. God's sovereignty fuels us to pray and to evangelize more and to obey him more, not less. Because God uses those very things, prayer, evangelism, obedience, as instruments to accomplish his will and purpose on the earth. And that's, that just, to me, our God is a great and amazing God to do that. Well, this prayer is a sweet reminder of that. teaches us several lessons, I think, about prayer. And uh, I want to note a few of them uh, this morning. First of all, I want you to notice the immediate stimulus of prayer. And uh, we've alluded to the theological reason behind it, but I want you to see the basis for it there. This is, the, I think, the, the subject of verses 1 through 3. Look at verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord that to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Verse 3, then I turned my face to the Lord God. 
It's an interesting connection to note that. In other words, Daniel's prayer was prompted by his reading of God's word. We're told Daniel was reading the prophet Jeremiah, which he calls the word of the Lord. Daniel acknowledges the authority of a fellow prophet as part of the scriptures, a part of the word from God, the the lens by which Daniel is interpreting his visions and dreams that we've been studying together, the lens by which he's interpreting those, and in fact, his very life, even history, was the lens of the word of God. In this instance, he's thinking about the end of the exile, or what he calls the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. He was probably reading Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12, which says, The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I'll punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Jeremiah 29.10 says something very similar. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. Speaking of his people, I'm going to visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, bring you back to the land of Israel. When Daniel was reading and studying that, his response is to fall on his face and pray. We might say that the Lord's promises to him drove him to prayer. Or Davis puts it like this, it's as if God's promises have Velcro on them and our prayers are meant to get stuck there. It's a great principle of prayer because I don't know about you, but sometimes I get stuck in my praying. Anybody, anybody agree? Maybe just me, I suppose. Um, sometimes we get stuck. We don't know what to pray. Sometimes we go through trials and difficulties that it's difficult to know exactly how or what to pray. But let, let's let Daniel teach us here. He teaches us that the scriptures are what stimulates our praying. If you're having a prayer problem, you need to open up the Word of God. He he said, let the Scriptures do this. Search the Scriptures, find the promises of God, and pray those precious promises. For example, we might think of uh, the great promise there of Paul in Philippians 1, verse 6, where God promises there to complete the good work that he began in us. That's a promise from God. And, and as you find yourself in the midst of trials, you find yourself in the midst of your faith sputtering along and stumbling along and getting frustrated over uh, different temptations and trials, look to this promise to pray. This promise humbles us. It breaks our pride. It shows us how much we need God and all of our weaknesses. But, but all of it is resting on this promise. This is a promise to you. He will finish the work he's begun in your life. There's another example uh, relevant from our time last week on Mission Sunday. The prophet Micah, chapter 4, probably not a place that we look to guide our prayers often, but the prophet there describes the peace of God's kingdom 
and in which people from all nations will come into his kingdom. But Micah chapter 4 verse 4 says, They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts have spoken. Isn't it a wonderful picture of peace there, of, of pe- God's people from the nations coming into the kingdom and experiencing this kind of peace from God? And it is a promise from God that He will do that. And that promise, church, should stimulate us to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. Those in Nigeria, believers who are beaten and and bombed. Those girls who are abducted and raped and forced into marriages in Pakistan. Those Christians who are suffering in prison in North Korea. We should pray the fulfillment of Micah 4.4 for their lives. And pray for it to come quickly for them. God has promised that. And so therefore we should pray it. Church. This is how Daniel prayed. He's letting the scriptures drive his prayer life. He's letting the promises of God drive his prayer life. And it gives great assurance and confidence to us as, as we pray. The word, the promises of God, and we even say the sovereignty of God, they don't stifle our praying. They stimulate us to pray more. Secondly, we note the, the thoughtful adoration of prayer. I notice how Daniel begins his prayer there in verse 4. He says, I pray to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, the main content of the prayer is going to be his confession and the petition that Daniel is going to make. But notice here, as he begins, his prayer is not without adoration and worship. That is, Daniel is taking time to consider who it is that he's praying to. He says, verse 4, the Lord is the great and awesome God. He mentions other characteristics of his greatness, verse 7, verse 5. Verse 14, he speaks of God's righteousness. Uh, Verse 15, he's reflecting on the might, the power of God to bring people out of the land of Egypt with his mighty hand, how he's made a name for himself. This God is a great and mighty God. Verse 4, he says, he is a God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. It's notable here, uh, may not be apparent in the English so much, that God's covenant name, Yahweh, the Lord, is used multiple times in these verses. And the words commandment, judgment, and law, all of these words point us to the covenant that God had with Moses. God is not just a fearful God, mighty and awesome. He is a faithful God who keeps his word to his people. He fulfills his promises. This God doesn't just cause us to tremble. This God keeps us secure. So in this short verse, Daniel is teaching us how to worship and adore God. And apparently this is something that you can do even while you're in exile. 
While the circumstances around you are pitiful and painful and filled with fear, the greatness of God, the promises of God do not change no matter the mess that we find ourselves in. And we should pause to think about who it is we're praying. There's a story that's told about Lyndon Johnson when he was vice president during the Kennedy administration and a man named Russell Baker who was uh, working for the uh, New York Times. Early in 1961, Baker was coming out of the Senate and Vice President Johnson grabbed him and he said, you, he says, I've been looking for you. And then he pulled him into his office and he began this long speech on how crucial Baker was to the administration, what an insider he was. And he's just going on and rambling. And he, he picks up a piece of paper though and he scribbles something on the piece of paper and he hits the little buzzer and his secretary comes in and gets the paper. A few minutes later, she returns back with the, the paper, hands it back to LBJ and he looks at it, quickly crumples it up and throws it away and continues on in his speech. Well, later, Baker tracked down what was written on that piece of paper to his secretary. And what was written on it was, who is this that I'm talking to? You know, it shouldn't be that way in our prayers. Brothers and sisters, there should be times when we set our request aside and adore God. The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love God. Him and keep his commandments. Ian Dugwood in his commentary writes, If I remembered God's greatness, my prayer life would be radically transformed. It would. Well, the third lesson we learn from Daniel's prayer is the earnest confession of prayer. And this is the bulk of the prayer there in verses 5 through 14. And it it really is a remarkable section. It seemed repetitive probably to us as I, I read it. It's beautiful, though, example of what confession before God really looks like. It's beautiful because there's no attempt to blame others for the misery that they're in. Uh, we, we would see how tempting that would have been. It would have been easy for Daniel in his prayer of confession to talk about and cry out to God about how bad things are because of, of the wicked Babylonians and all the bad things that they have been doing to them. But Daniel refuses to go there. Notice his confession beginning in verse 5. We have sinned. And done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. And that confession continues throughout the prayer. I'll give you just a few highlights. Verse 6, he says, We have not listened to the prophets. Verse 8, Because we have sinned against you. Verse 9, we have rebelled against him. Verse 10, we've not obeyed the voice of the Lord. Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. This is a great example of biblical confession because there's no blame shifting. 
Daniel mourns uh, over the consequences of their sin. He speaks of guilt and shame. Verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. I think he repeats that line again about open shame. God, in his righteousness, he says, God has been righteous in all of this. He did exactly what he told us he would do, what exactly he told us he would do to Israel if they turned away from the covenant and broke his law. He calls it a great calamity, verse 12. Notice verses 13 and 14 again. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. This is just a quick summary of the confession, but you see how thorough it is. Notice a couple of details. First, notice how Daniel includes himself in this confession. There's a lot of language there about we, isn't there? We have sinned. In verse 8, he's very comprehensive. To us, the Lord belongs open shame. To our kings, our princes, our fathers, and, and, and even by his language, even to me, he says, because we've sinned against you. It's so important to have that attitude in our confession before the Lord. I was reading this week, Neville Chamberlain once said in a speech uh, that that he he said that the responsibility of the Second World War was Hitler's alone. And there was great applause among the people. And the reason there was great applause in that is because men like to hear that kind of thing. The problem with our world is this. The The problem in my life is the world. The problem with the church is this. It's, it's, it's modernism or it's materialism or it's traditionalism or, or it's some other ism. It's the people out there. That's the problem with the church. And the temptation, you see, and all, is, is to see that the problem is always something that is out there. When in fact, confession reminds us that the problem is in here. We have sinned. And, and, and by the way, this is what worries Daniel, I think, as well, in this prayer. I, it's, I don't know if you caught it or not in verse 13, but, but, but look what he says, the second part. He says, all this calamity has come upon us, this exile. He's talking about the exile, the 70 years of exile in Babylon. And he says, yet, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. What what concerns Daniel in his prayer is that though God's people have been through this exile, the fact that it has not led them to godly grief and repentance. And so here they are, they're at the, the end of the 70 years, basically. Daniel was looking forward to going back to the land of Israel. But you can see in his heart, he's struggling here. What good is it for God's people to go back to the land and not go back to their God? To still have no sense of their sin and repentance. 
You know, confession is one of the primary marks of a believer in Jesus Christ. And really one of the primary marks of the church that we will continually mourn over our sin. Herman Veldkamp explained it like this, what distinguishes us from the world, what distinguishes us in here, the church, from the world, is not that we are less wicked, but that by the grace of God, we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is and confess our sins. The church is the one body on the earth that confesses sin. Where the confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer church. You say, well, that's quite a powerful statement. I, I, I think it's probably, it's very true, isn't it? You look around today, the United Nations is an organization that they don't confess any sin. The, this isn't a personal shot at anybody, but the local city council, they're, they're not, they don't confess sins. I, I'm pretty sure, the, I'm not a member of the Lions Club, but I'm pretty sure they don't confess sins down at the Lions Club. But I, I know that in the church, God's people are called to confession of sins. One of the places that we see this vividly, is in Ezekiel's description of how God works in the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 26, God says, I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put into you. And then just a few verses later, verse 31, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. What is his point? His point is that, that confession and repentance of sin is evidence of a new heart. And the new spirit that God has placed in us. A new spirit produces a new sadness and mourns for our sins. It produces a longing to live righteous lives. And what Daniel's concerned with here is that there seems to be very little, if any, of this that he sees in God's people. They've gone through this terrible exile. They're without a home. They're without a temple. They're without freedom. And sadly, he says... They're without repentance. It makes you wonder if this is a big reason why Daniel wrote this prayer down. Because maybe he's thinking it will be a model for them and their confession and to encourage them toward genuine confession of sin. It's certainly a model for us, isn't it? Is earnest confession a part of your, your prayer life? And perhaps not just a part, but a significant part, according to Daniel, which should characterize us. As Christians, repentance and belief is not something that we do one time when we join the church. We repented of our sins and we believed on Christ and we do that one time. No, as Christians, we are a people who are constantly to be repenting and believing. Constantly humbling ourselves before God. We, we, we know, finally, the fourth thing, the desperate petition of prayer. That's the message, I think, of verses 15 through 19. Um, this is Daniel asking that God would once again restore his people. Verse 
uh, 16, he says, O Lord, according to your righteousness and acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. So he's asking God to restore it. Verse, at the end of verse 17, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. At uh, the end of verse 18, open your eyes, see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. Remember, Daniel has just read the promise of God that after 70 years this would happen. And Daniel uses that promise and prays it. He prays that it would be so. Notice something about this petition, though. Uh, we think about our own request. It, it wasn't his petition, at least it doesn't seem to me to be saying, God, restore us because we've been really good. We've suffered enough. God restores. No, notice the, what's underlying this petition. It was the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord, the reputation of God to which Daniel appeals. He, 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 several ways as he's praying, restore us, God. Notice he, he, he calls it, verse 16, your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, your people, verse 16, have become a byword among all who are around us. Verse 17, this is about your sanctuary, which is desolate. Verse 18, the city that is called by your name, he says. Verse 19, delay not for your own sake, Oh, my God, because your city, your people, called by your name. Perhaps the problem with so much of our praying today is that it's more about our name than it is his name. And what Daniel's reminding us here, that faithful prayer always seeks the glory of God. First, this isn't a foreign idea to us, is it? We, we've, we've even heard our Lord. How did He teach us to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. My kingdom come. Right? No, that's not what He said. He said, "Pray Your kingdom come, Your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven." Genuine believers always have this concern close to their hearts, not, not themselves, but God. His name, His glory. So we think about our prayers. We certainly have needs and things to pray for, but part of this is our perspective and, and the angle at which we come at this. Would it bring God glory if He saved your prodigal son or daughter? Would it bring him glory? What praise would come to Christ if your marriage was, which is perhaps on the rocks, is renewed and restored and strengthened? Would it honor Christ? Would it honor Jesus' name if, if God would sustain you and strengthen you in the fiery trial that you're going through? Right now. Is, is this a part of your prayers? Would 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 what glory would it bring to God if He were to revive our church? If, if He were to renew our love and commitment to the Word of God? 
as he did Daniel. If, if he would renew our sense of prayer as we see here. If he would renew our spirit of worship to adore God. If he would break our hearts over sin. If he would give us new desires to live a righteous life. If he would change our perspective from this being about us to suddenly being about his name in this community. Beloved, I would, I would say to you, has, has he not said that he will do these things if we humble ourselves before him and pray and seek his righteousness? Daniel's prayer ends in a sense of pleading. At least it strikes me as pleading for the restoration of God's people. His, his phrases become short, don't they? Verse 19, oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, oh God, because your city, your people are called by your name. We are about to sing of that name. There is something about that name. There's a reason it's about that name, isn't it? The name of Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven by which we are saved. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he's Lord. It's all about Him. And if you're here today and you don't know Him, pray to Him. Use Daniel's prayer. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. And know this, dear friend, that He has already acted for you. He has done the greatest thing you could ever imagine. He sent his son Jesus Christ to live the Christian life that you could not live. He sent him to die on the cross to pay for your sins. He rose again on the third day to give you life. Call out to him today. Call on him. Call on the name of Jesus to save you. Lord, we thank you for Daniel and his model prayer for us today. And we ask, Lord, that you might use your word once again to change our hearts. We recognize that need to shape our prayers. We recognize that need. But ultimately, O oh Lord, to direct our attention and our need to you. So as we sing once again that there's something about that name, I pray that you would drive these truths deep in our hearts today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.